I'm uh, going to talk a little bit about uh, local Christianity in Melanesia. And uh, if I talk too fast or too unintelligible, please don't hesitate to interrupt me at any time. And um, try, can try to uh, be a little bit slower or more distinct. Uh, local Christianity in Melanesia has long been ignored by anthropologists. In 1990, John Barker was among the first to argue that Christian beliefs and practices on the village level should be studied as phenomena in their own right. Since then, anthropological interest in the topic has, of course, increased considerably, and there are now quite a few publications, many of them even referring to an anthropology of Christianity in their titles or subtitles. According to Barker, this change can be explained by shifts in theoretical fashion in the discipline, as well as by the fact that the intensifying activities and presence of various Christian sects in Melanesia makes the phenomena very difficult to ignore or explain away as missionary interference. Indeed, adherents of the mainline churches, Catholics, Anglicans, and Methodists, have been facing a growing number of comparatively more rigid or fundamentalist competitors, and Pentecostal forms of teaching and worship in particular have become more and more widespread, whether through the different efforts of Pentecostal organizations or through revival or charismatic movements within the mainland churches themselves. The characteristic situation in many parts of Melanesia, such as, for example, Papua New Guinea, is thus one of different denominations competing with each other within the same local setting. Yet, anthropological assessments of denominational pluralism are still the exception. Against this background, I will examine the relation between Catholics and Seventh-day Adventists in Parundu, a small and remote rural village in the Kagua district of Papua New Guinea's Southern Highlands province, where I did fieldwork between 1990 and 1996. I will also discuss the work of scholars such as Harry Englund, James Leach, and Joel Robbins. The latter can be seen as one of the most influential figures in the aforementioned anthropology of Christianity. Based on theoretical approaches by Marshall Sorlins and Louis Dumont, he argues that in Papua New Guinea's Sundown province, the Europeans have adopted the cultural content of Christianity on its own terms, so that Christian meanings themselves, rather than ones drawn from traditional culture, begin to provide the motive for conversion. Thus, an irreversible and profound process of transformation is set in motion, and in Robin's view, the Europeans find themselves living between two cultures, trapped, as Deborah McDougall writes, between the relationality of indigenous culture and the individuality of Christian culture. While they attempt to negotiate the resulting contradictions by means of the Christian ritual life, these contradictions ultimately cause the Europeans to suffer and to fall into becoming sinners. Now, critics not only accused Robbins of presenting indigenous culture and the culture of Christianity as two bounded, coherent, and largely homogeneous entities, they also rejected his opposing these two cultures on the grounds that relationality and individuality would actually be detectable in both of them. Moreover, Eric Hirsch sees the opposition set up by Robbins as resulting from a process of transference when he argues that the claim that some Melanesian Christians are caught between cultures, between a Melanesian relationalism and a Christian individualism, attributes Western knowledge conventions and dilemmas to Melanesians. 
In this context, one could also mention Mark Moscow's recent contribution to the Journal of the Royal Anthropological Institute, in which he postulates heretofore unrecognized analogies between indigenous individualism and Christian individualism. Yet, respondents to this contribution took Moscow to task for his tendency to universalize conceptions of the so-called new Melanesian ethnography at the expense of cultural specificity. But back to Robbins. His portrayal of the Europeans as making a complete break with their past has been seen as problematic, and the same can be said of the dichotomy between rupture and continuity on which this portrayal appears to be based. Thus, David Maxwell points out that in the process of large-scale conversion, there must be both continuity and discontinuity from the outset, while J.D.Y. Peel suggests that rather than assuming a dilemma that must be resolved one way or the other, one should explore the complex ways in which continuity and rupture are, are combined in the production of cultural forms. So just to summarize, there are actually three points of criticism against Robbins and his contribution to the anthropology of Christianity. One, that he homogenizes these uh, two cultures, two cultures, uh, traditional culture of the European and uh, Christian culture. He hom homogen homogenize homogenizes these two cultures and he sets up an opposition between them as, as if they were completely different from each other. And the third point of criticism is uh, that uh, Robbins' uh, argument rests on a dichotomy between rupture and continuity. Now, with my paper, I hope to move beyond uh, preconceived dichotomies by seeing local Christianity as a form of local modernity which results from globalization and localization as two seemingly distinct yet complementary and interdependent aspects of the same process. This view differs, of course, from early versions of globalization theory, which had it that the, world, which had it that the worldwide dominance of capitalism would be accompanied by an equally successful cultural imperialism, and that, as Marshall Solins writes, indigenous people who were not destroyed would be suborned by the commodification of everything and everyone, their ways of life thus transformed into marginalized and impoverished versions of the one planetary culture. Instead of becoming destroyed or being suborned, however, indigenous people began to actively proclaim their identity and integrity, and it became obvious that in different cultures, modernity is being interpreted, adapted to, and appropriated differently. This results not in the disappearance of cultural differences, but in their increase, not in homogenization, but in heterogenization. Bruce Nauft calls it a paradox that people in different world areas increasingly share aspirations, material standards, and social institutions at the same time that their local definition of and engagement with these initiatives fuels cultural distinctiveness. Accordingly, from the late 1990s on, anthropologists started to talk no longer about modernity in the singular, but about modernities in the plural, or, to be exact, they talked about multiple alternative vernacular, indigenous, or local modernities, and hence my formulation of seeing local Christianity as a form of local modernity. First, it was globalization, Solins writes in a collection of papers on history-making in the Pacific. First, it was globalization, then localization, now hybridization, from thesis to antithesis to synthesis. It is as if recent world history 
particularly the cultural history of Pacific Island people, were being written by some mad epigonal Hegelian. For Salins, hybridity is a terrible word, much too abstract and indeterminate, but it seems that this terrible word can be dispensed with because a synthesis of globalization and localization also follows from the insight that the global is always perceived and appropriated in terms of the local, while the local in turn can only be constituted vis-a-vis the global, and hence my formulation of globalization and localization as two complementary and interdependent aspects of the same process. Um, in Pirundu, local Christianity is marked by denominational pluralism. Men and women, older and younger generations, big men and ordinary men have all been competing with each other by adopting first Catholicism as a mainline and then Adventism as a fundamentalist version of Christianity. Both denominations construct what they view as traditional culture <coughs> as a kind of counter-image that stands for everything one has to leave behind in order to become a real Christian. Such local perceptions of Catholicism and Adventism, however, prove to be informed by culturally specific beliefs and needs, and in this sense, the past lives on in the attempt to break with it. When viewed from a historical perspective, Catholics and Adventists in Pirundu are actually influencing each other. The demand to give up everything allegedly issued at the beginning of Catholic missionization um, is taken up and to some extent surpassed or superseded by the Adventists. The Catholics in turn react by trying to end their old habits and to become more Adventists themselves. Just like Catholic and Adventist versions of it, the historical development of local Christianity as a whole can thus be seen as representing both rupture and continuity as well as corroborating the focus on both homogenization and heterogenization, both globalization and localization. The example of Pirundu demonstrates that as a form of local modernity, local Christianity is as heterogeneous as the sources it comes from. Western Christianity as imported by missionaries on the one hand and traditional religion on the other. In my view, however, recent research on local modernities has rather tended to overlook intracultural differences, tensions, and antagonisms, regardless of whether the people were portrayed as acting in continuity with their past or as making a break with it. Such intracultural differences, tensions, and antagonisms may be particularly obvious in a situation of denominational pluralism, yet there is no reason to believe that they must be absent where one denomination enjoys a religious monopoly. Let me now come to my example of Pirundu. Uh, and to the map. I, will, uh, I have um, tried to, um, to deliver my ethnographical data in three parts. First, I will be talking about the beginning of Catholic missionization. Then, uh, second, on uh, second missionization, so to speak, of the Seventh-day Adventists. And third, I'm going to, uh, into my experience of going back to the field. I, I did my first part of field work there in 1990, then went back in 1996, and it was interesting at that time to observe how things have changed with Catholics and Seventh-day within these six years. So that will be the third part of, my, of the presentation of my ethnographic data. Um, Pirundu has approximately 200 permanent inhabitants. They are speakers of the Papuan language Kewa, 
which uh, has been written about by Carl Franklin, Isaac Josephides, John Lee Roy, and Mary MacDonald. The fieldwork in Pirundu, my fieldwork in Pirundu, had hardly begun in 1990 when people told me they had, that I had come to a place hidden in the bush or cut off from the outside world. You must sound familiar to you, I guess. Uh, indeed, there was no permanent road connecting Pirundu to the district capital. Hardly any villagers had ever left the province, and very few had attended community school. With only a few trade stores, no coffee plantation, and very little income from cash crops, people mostly had to rely on their subsistence economy, and socio-economic differentiation appeared to be not very marked. In Pirundu, perceiving the global in terms of the local means that the outside world, to some extent, only exists in the form of ideas. Ideas about Westerners, for example, or ideas about development, or about how life in places such as the district capital or the capital of the country uh, Mosby would be like. Without such ideas, however, no one would have been able to develop the notion of living hidden in the bush, and it is in this sense that the local can only be constituted vis-à-vis the global. Yeah, Pirundu was first visited by representatives of the Australian colonial administration in 1958. They encountered villagers who had already seen planes, pieces of cloth, bush knives, and steel axes. In the course of subsequent sporadic patrols, Warfare was suppressed, censuses were carried out, and the people were made to build rest houses and clean up the pathways between different locations. <coughs> Compared to the colonial officers, Catholic priests and catechists came later but stayed much longer, conducting services and introducing mission schools. When I asked my hosts and informants what these priests and catechists had said and done in detail, most of the answers given by expatriate or local dignitaries Uh, and in pre-planned interviews, corresponded to what I, I came to see as an official view. In this perspective, the first missionaries had tried, as one priest put it, to invite the villagers to join the Catholic Church by way of baptism, assuming that in pre-colonial times they had already believed in God and that Christianity had to, had to be built on the traditional manifestations of this belief, a position that is, of course, well in accordance with the Second Vatican Council. Perhaps unsurprisingly, there also proved to be an unofficial view, which was voiced mainly by ordinary parishioners or during rather informal conversations. In this perspective, the first missionaries had burned down the old cult houses, desecrated the stones deposited there, and told the people that Judgment Day was imminent. Only those who were willing to give up everything, that is, to do away with traditional cult practices or pig-killing ceremonies, would be able to go to heaven, whereas everyone else would have to go to hell. Uh, since I'm talking about the beginning of Catholic missionization, I also have some pictures from the Catholic community. Here's a catechist in the center, and uh, this is a Catholic church in the background. And this is just after one Catholic uh, Sunday worship service where the catechist is uh, explaining some uh, finer parts of, the, of, the, of, the, of his uh, sermon and Bible to uh, members of the Catholic congregation. And then there are uh, evening uh, worship services in the, in the individual houses, or uh, house min, uh, min's houses, and uh, where also um, parts of the Bible are being read and discussed. Then, as uh, uh, Catholics are associated with uh, traditional culture, so to speak, 
uh, pig killing ceremonies, uh, one rather big uh, pig killing ceremony that occurred in the neighborhood during the time of my field work. Also one of the uh, upcoming big men of Parundu who participated there and proudly presents uh, his pigs, which are to be slaughtered. And uh, also butchering them, cutting them up, is also a privilege of the big men who are said to be very knowledgeable in doing it. This is also one of the big men from Parundu. <coughs> and then these pieces of pork are cooked in an earth oven while the women take care of the intestines, also gender segregation, separation there. And then uh, the different pieces are, of course, uh, distributed. And I must say I was happy at that time that it wasn't my prime topic of research because I found it very hard to keep track and to, to uh, you know, what was, how much was given to whom and, and what was actually happening. It's very easy to, 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 to lose uh, the, the overview. And so I was happy at that time to, uh, to be able to focus on something else and not to have to record what is exact, exactly given to whom. Yeah, in 1990, there was a permanent Catholic church building in Parundu, and the community uh, of baptized Catholics included more than 50% of the whole village population, with men, members of the older generation, and big men being overrepresented. At least officially, the Catholics regard themselves as Christians and Parundu as a Christian village. They claim to have complied with the alleged demand to give up everything so that traditional religion as a whole has been completely wiped out and replaced by Christianity. In the context of informal conversations, however, ordinary parishioners in particular were not so sure. They wondered whether they really managed to follow all the rules and interdictions propagated by the church authorities and whether they would be among the chosen when Judgment Day comes. Beneath the surface, so to speak, there was a detectable amount of uncertainty and doubt, and this, I believe, can be related to the fact that some 30 years after the arrival of the first missionaries, the Catholics had lost their religious monopoly to the Seventh-day Adventists, SDA. Whereas the origin of the Catholic community ultimately goes back to the visits of priests and catechists, who came from the outside, the SDA congregation was founded by a man from Parundu, the son of a deceased big man. This happened in the mid-1980s, and since that time, the number of Adventists has been growing continuously, with four baptized villagers at the beginning of my first stay in 1990, and 20, 21 at the end in 1991. Many of them had been Catholics earlier, but had been persuaded to switch their religious affiliation. All in all, the whole Adventist community would amount to one quarter of the whole population of Parundu. In terms of the composition of this community, Adventist Christianity appears to be particularly attractive to those who are underrepresented among the Catholics, women, members of the younger generation, and ordinary men. At the same time, the breach between the two denominations cuts through clan, subclans, and families. Just like many of the ordinary Catholics, my Adventist interlocutors re remembered having been told that they would have to give up everything in order to be able to go to heaven when Judgment Day comes. Unlike the Catholics, however, the Adventists are also forbidden to own pigs, to eat pig meat, and to consume beer, coffee, tea, betel nuts, and tobacco. This makes it hard to understand 
why are more and more villagers uh, willing to make such sacrifices? In any event, since they alone comply with all the aforementioned interdictions, the Adventists claim that theirs is the only church that fully corresponds to the will of God. From the Adventist perspective, the contrast with the Catholics could not be greater. They, the Catholics, still wear traditional clothings and body ornaments, which we have seen. They still believe in the efficacy of bush and ancestral spirits. They still apply magical practices, and perhaps more importantly, they still have pigs, as we have also seen. If, however, giving up everything is necessary to become a Christian, it follows that no such transformation has yet taken place among the Catholics, and this, of course, serves as a justification for any attempt to convert them to Adventism. Moreover, just as the rules and interdictions adhered to by the Adventists proved to be relatively more rigid, so are their beliefs. Accordingly, I noticed a much greater degree of convergence between official and unofficial SDA views, irrespective of whether the past, missionization, the present, the perception of one's own community, or the future, Judgment Day, was concerned. And I also have some pictures with respect to the Seventh-day Adventist community. Uh, there was this one uh, evangelization week which culminated in the baptism of various villagers and uh, to increase the Catholic, uh, the Adventist community. Uh, this is uh, also the cover of the book which is being passed around, Pathways to Heaven, uh, uh, where this uh, hall here, uh, where the uh, evangelization week took place, was built. And uh, just like the Catholics, uh, people had a, a big uh, earth oven. But unlike the Catholics, of course, they didn't kill pigs, but a cow, which is uh, but uh, which is presented with the same amount of pride. And, uh, and uh, yeah. the person here was actually one of my main informants, uh, a young Adventist who, is, uh, who has also been baptized. And here in the middle is his mother, who really looks very sad because... Uh, she was Catholic, her son became an Adventist, and she was considering, considering this baptism as uh, a death of her child. And uh, accordingly, she is uh, very sad of losing her son. And uh, some, people, some people have uh, painted their face white, which is, of course, also the, the color for uh, mourning, for grief. Baptism by immersion, which is, of course, from the Adventist perspective, the only real Baptism, whereas uh, spread, sprinkling water on the surface of the skin, as the Catholics do, does not uh, is not sufficient. How, how is it supposed to wash away your sins if it's only on the surface? You really have to uh, be immersed. Yeah. So uh, Catholics are not really Christians from the Adventist perspective, and um, and uh, the Catholics in turn resent the way they are seen by their competitors. They accuse the Adventists of damaging the name of the Catholics, as they say, and they point out that. Without pigs, the Adventists are not in a position to afford the bride price needed to marry and thus to provide for the continuation of the clan. Yet, having failed to prevent the SDA congregation from being founded and from growing unabatedly, the Catholics feel threatened because they fear that their future existence as a community is called into question. In responding, they try to stay away from the Adventists as if a complete separation between the denominations would diminish the danger of further conversions. At the same time, however, the Catholics also attempt to become more Adventist themselves, that is, to appropriate elements of Adventist Christianity. In August 1991, for example, the Catechist declared 
that people would soon be forbidden to drink beer, to chew betel nuts or to eat pig meat, which probably meant having to submit to the ways of the Adventists. In addition, SDA-style morning services were introduced and the catechist followed the example of his Adventist counterparts when in his services he began to give the chapter and verse of particular Bible passages and to translate them from the vernacular Kewa into the lingua franca Tokpissin. I left Pairundu in October 1991, returned in December 1995, and before long realized that the old men had shaved off their beards, had re replaced their bark belts and aprons with western trousers and shirts, and that some of them had given up smoking on the grounds that they wanted to follow Jesus. In contrast to my first stay, nobody could be seen playing cards, considered a sin by the Adventists, and in general, people preferred to call each other by their Christian rather than by their local names. The Catholic parishes of Parundu and neighbor, neighboring Anapote had been amalgamated and uh, were now using a new church building situated between the two villages. Perhaps more importantly, the priest and catechist had been replaced and the new priest had entrusted several people with particular tasks they had to fulfill at the Sunday services. The flower leader decorated the church building, the prayer leader said certain prayers, and the communion leader dispersed communion. Visitors in the Sunday, to the Sunday services could thus observe an alternation of different functionaries, which, however, had already been routine for the Adventists at a time when the leadership of the Catholic Church in Parundu had been undisputedly represented by the catechist alone. When asked about the liturgical changes he had initiated, the new priest stated that they were aimed at enhancing the responsibility of the community and reducing their dependency on the catechist. The catechist himself, however, did not reiterate this view. He saw the changes as a return to the services which had been common at the time of the apostles, so that one was now merely repeating what had already been done before in history. The differences notwithstanding, the priest and catechist concurred with each other in talking implicitly about a modification or alteration of existing practices, whereas ordinary parishioners often stated that in order to be ready for the impending judgment day, they had to end their old habits and introduce a new way of worship. Which, of course, again, presents a difference between an official view and unofficial views, just as with respect to the beginning of missionizations. Now, my own view, of course, is different again. In my view, the new functionaries rather represent, uh, prayer leader, communion leader, and so on, these new functionaries rather represent a continuation of the Catholics' attempt to appropriate elements of Adventist Christianity. Whereas the beliefs and activities of the Adventists themselves proved to be as constant as they had been during my first stay in Parundu. The ongoing assimilation of the Catholics corresponded with my observation of people switching to Western clothing and abstaining from playing cards. Yet, this assimilation had not succeeded in containing the number of Adventists. Just like the Catholics, they had combined their parish with that of a neighboring village, which had resulted in their further numerical growth. At the same time, however, Individual villagers who had left the SDA community or who were on the verge of doing so must have found the relevant rules and interdictions too hard to comply with because they were said to have consumed beer, committed adultery or drunk pig blood in the course of magical practices, as it happens. 
Yeah, um, I come now to, I'm now coming to the third and last part of my paper in which I'm trying to refer my ethnographical data to the phenomena of globalization and localization. I'm going to talk first about uh, the extent to which I believe that Parundo can be seen as representative. Then I will uh, look at both denominations, Catholics and Adventists, uh, with respect to their relationship uh, with uh, what is viewed as traditional culture. And uh, thirdly, I will talk briefly about the heterogeneity of local Christianity in Parundo and the way this heterogeneity uh, is meaningful in view of the recent research on, on local modernities. In the vast ocean of the cultural history of Pacific Island people referred to by Marshall Solins, Pyrundu may not constitute more than a tiny drop of water. Nonetheless, to some extent it can be seen as representative, and this becomes obvious when ad local Adventist Christianity is referred to the global phenomena of fundamentalism and Pentecostalism, which have proved increasingly influential in many parts of Melanesia in general, and Papua New Guinea in particular. The Seventh-day Adventist Church as a whole emerged out of fundamentalist currents within North American Protestantism. Corresponding to these currents, the Adventists in Parundu are not only comparatively more rigid than the Catholics in terms of their rules, interdictions, and beliefs, they also trust in the inspiration and infallibility of the Bible, which they see as free from contradictions. They claim to belong to a chosen elite defined by baptism and adherence to strict regulations. They want to increase their size through evangelization, and they understand the world as a location of the conflict between God and devil, soon to be decided on Judgment Day. All in all, I would therefore agree with a statement made by Sasha Josephides with re reference to the Boroi of PNG's Madang province. The Seventh-day Adventists are fundamentalists. But what about Pentecostalism? It may seem surprising to mention Adventist Christianity in this context because the relation between the phenomena of fundamentalism and Pentecostalism is contested in the literature. Moreover, the Adventists in Parundu strongly disapprove of attempts to get into contact with the Holy Spirit and thus of an element that has generally been associated with Pentecostalism. Indeed, there has been a Holy Spirit, what they call a Holy Spirit movement in, in Parundu at some point. Uh, point, and uh, Adventists take pride in, in, in assuring the visitor that there never took place in such an uh, endeavor, and that uh, uh, that this, uh, such a Holy Spirit movement has to be condemned unequivocally, because uh, the spirit one can get into contact with at these occasions is, is, is cannot be the Holy Spirit, according to the Adventist view. Um, so why mention Pentecostalism in respect with Adventist Christianity, one could ask. However, um, the Adventists do subscri subscribe to what is also listed as typical for Pentecostalism, namely a firm and explicit rejection of indigenous religious traditions, support for certain limited forms of gender equality in the religious sphere, and an emphasis on self-control. The very firm and explicit rejection of indigenous religious traditions also constitutes a way of taking these traditions seriously, or, as Robbins puts it, of preserving people's beliefs concerning the reality and power of the spiritual worlds, worlds which they have broken, so that Pentecostalism presents itself as very easy to localize in the sense of making it speak to local concerns. Yet, scholars have found Pentecostalism markedly successful in replicating itself in canonical form everywhere it spreads. And therefore, 
Robbins continues, it can be used to support both theories that construe globalization as a process of westernizing homogenization and those that understand it as a process of indigenizing differentiation. Similarly, José Casanova declares that Pentecostalism is simultaneously global and local. In Pirundo, Catholics and Adventists share the firm and explicit rejection not only of indigenous religious traditions, but of traditional culture in general, since, at least unofficially, they both believe that to give up everything is imperative for going to heaven or becoming a Christian. Traditional culture here turns into a kind of counter-image, and in my view this provides a particularly striking example of the global influencing the local. The local, however, also influences the global, since both Catholics and Adventists appropriate their respective versions of Christianity along traditional lines. I would argue that Catholics and STA versions of Christianity are equally understood as a kind of work. Being performed as a kind of gift, this work will, by way of reciprocity, bring access to the apparently superior power of Westerners and lead to the subsequent enhancement of one's own status as a kind of counterprestation. Hence, rejecting tradition is not only a way of taking it seriously, it can in itself be informed by culturally specific beliefs and needs. The past persists in its very rejection, or to take up a formulation Robbins uses with respect to Pentecostalism, denominational pluralism in Parundu preserves that which it breaks from. Corresponding to their comparatively greater rigidity, the Adventists have distanced themselves from the past and have emulated the example of Westerners in a more decisive and consistent manner. Yet the same rigidity also causes the influence of the past or the parallels between one's own perception of Christianity and traditional concepts to be more marked, and this in turn creates an impression of plausibility and truth. Just as in pre-colonial times, human existence was held to be continually threatened, for example by malevolent ancestral or bush spirits, Adventists now fear that even a single fault or transgression will inevitably lead to a punishment by an all-seeing God, if not to the final refusal of admission to heaven. If Christianity is linked to the offering of a gift, however, the conviction that a counterprestation is justified and likely increases with the size of the gift. Consequently, many villagers do not join the Adventist community despite the sacrifices that are linked to its strict rules and interdiction, but precisely because of these sacrifices. The comparatively greater rigidity of the Adventists thus leads to a comparatively greater certainty of salvation. I would see this certainty of salvation as a necessary precondition for both the claim that only the Seventh-day Adventist Church fully corresponds to the will of God, as well as for the attempt to proselytize, that is, to encourage the Catholics to switch their religious affiliation. So Adventists would say something like, uh, the Catholics are uh, proceeding to live in the way they have always lived, they are not sacrificing anything, what, uh, what, what are they hoping to get to access to heaven for, because they have not offered anything whereas we uh, uh, abstain from eating pig and drinking alcohol and chewing beetle and everything, so we really do offer something, we really make a sacrifice, and thus it's even more likely that we will be among the chosen when, when Judgment Day comes. When the first Adventist functionaries told the villagers to give up everything, they repeated, 
what, at least according to ordinary adherents of Catholicism, the first priests and catechists had said some 30 years earlier. Thus, the Adventist children can be said to reproduce the behavior that had allegedly been demanded of their Catholic parents. Given the Adventists' comparatively greater rigidity, however, it would perhaps be more adequate um, to speak of an attempt not to repeat or reproduce what came before, but to surpass or supersede it. Be that as it may, the first Adventist functionaries were able to build on a long-established pattern, and in this sense, the first Catholic priests and catechists, perhaps unwillingly, or certainly unwillingly, paved the way for, the, for conversion to Adventism. Having lost their religious monopoly, and fearing that not only their identity as Christians, but also their future existence as a community is called into question, the Catholics, for their part, react by appropriating elements of Adventist Christianity. The same happens in other parts of Papua New Guinea, where many of the mainstream churches are embracing the practices and worldview of the more fundamentalist churches, as Richard Eves has it. Similarly, revival or charismatic movements within the mainline churches could be interpreted as an attempt of the latter to counter the activities of Pentecostal organizations. Hence, coping with the threatening other takes the form of trying to become like him. And this is not unlike what happened in Parundu during the late 1950s, when villagers, confronted with the apparently superior power of the Westerners, decided to adopt what these Westerners were propagating thus making possible the foundation of Christian parishes as well as the introduction of cash crops and local government councils. If one looks at denominational pluralism in Parundu from a historical perspective, the beginning of Catholic missionization, conversion to Adventism, and the subsequent reaction of the Catholics appear as different phases of a single coherent process. Every one of these phases involves change Yet in every one of them, basically the same ideas and needs are effective. Since the Adventists surpass or supersede the Catholics, and since the Catholics in turn try to become more Adventists themselves, the aforementioned single coherent process seems to move away from traditional culture, but at the same time it paradoxically accentuates the influences of the past on the present, all the parallels between one's own perception of Christianity and traditional conceptions. Just like Pentecostalism, denominational pluralism in Parundu thus has the potential to support divergent theories, or, to repeat a formulation from the first part of this paper, just as, just like Catholic and Adventist's version of it, the historical development of local Christianity as a whole can be seen as representing both rupture and continuity, as well as corroborating the focus on both <coughs> homogenization and heterogenization, both globalization and localization. Local Christianity should not be equated with the sources it comes from. Western Christianity, as imported by missionaries on the one hand, and traditional religion on the other. At the same time, however, it is just as heterogeneous, and this heterogeneity manifests itself not only in the opposition between mainline and fundamentalist denominations, but also in the discrepancies between official and unofficial views, or between what people say and what they do. In Parundu, for example, both Catholics and Adventists criticized each other harshly, and as a result, a complete separation between the two communities was preferred, at least by the Catholics. Yet, 
Kinship links obviously became more important than considerations of religious affiliation when, in 1991, Catholic parents took care of their Adventist children during illness, while Adventists shared bright price payment with their Catholic relatives, something which was not supposed to happen, actually, but happened. Another example of religious affiliation receding into the background became evident when men from several different villages competed for the administrative position of the councillor and when nearly all the members of the SDA congregation from Perundu voted for the, from, for the candidate from Perundu, although he was a Catholic catechist and was known for speaking against the Adventists in his sermons. Yet the desire rather not to have uh, a person from an enemy village as a, as a counselor was, was more important. Moreover, the fact that women, members of the younger generation, and ordinary men tend to be overrepresented in the Adventist community shows that the enhancement of one's own status aimed at from the late 1950s until the present day is, and always has been, directed not only against Westerners, but also against men, members of the older generation, and big men from within one's own groups. In other words, intracultural differences, tensions, and antagonisms are being articulated in a religious idiom. I would expect such intracultural differences, tensions, and antagonisms to occur also where only one denomination enjoys a religious monopoly. It seems to me, however, that they have rather been overlooked in recent research on local modernities. Regardless of whether authors focus on globalization and see a rupture between the present and traditional culture, or whether they focus on localization and see older beliefs and practices continuing to exist beneath the surface. Harry Englund and James Leach, for example, criticize anthropologists for merely reproducing a preconceived meta-narrative, according to which the exportation of modernity makes people break with their past everywhere and at all times. While in Englund's and Leach's view, this means claiming a superior understanding and ultimately obscuring indigenous perspectives, Akhil Gupta accuses England and Leach of a lack of attention to differentiation. He suggests that they would let their ethnographic subjects emerge as collective actors who all seem to share certain notions of wealth and personhood, as well as certain ideas of the individual. Joel Robbins, on the other hand, welcomes England's and Leach's plea for good anthropological practice, but in accord with his perception of the European as undergoing an equally irreversible and profound process of transformation, he warns against, as he says, making a fetish of continuity and invokes the perils of continuity thinking. In addition, he implicitly claims that assuming similarities between new and old beliefs and practices rep represents a failure to take indigenous people seriously, since they are often concerned not with continuity but with rupture, making a break with their past, in many cases, precisely what they want. Just like England and Leach, however, Robbins too could be subjected to Gupta's charge of a lack of attention to differentiation. Tending to present indigenous culture and the culture of Christianity as two bounded, coherent, and largely homogeneous entities, he also lets his ethnographic subjects emerge as collective authors, when, among the European, he sees neither any conflict between Christians and heathens, nor major cleavages within the community as far as its break with the past is concerned. So, just as Robbins has been accused of setting up a position, I myself am I'm setting up a position as well. Uh, on the one hand, England Leach uh, arguing in favor of continuity and localization. On the other hand, Robbins arguing in favor of rupture and globalization. Yet both 
uh, equally tend to overlook uh, heterogeneity, in my, in my view. The differences notwithstanding, Englert, Leach and Robbins concur in that, according to the former, fieldwork as lived experience is indispensable for the production of anthropological knowledge, while the latter has deservedly been praised for attending closely to what people do in church and listening to what they say about being Christian. The very examples of Englert, Leach and Robbins may show that an acknowledgement of the importance of ethnographic fieldwork does not necessarily provide an antidote against overlooking intracultural differences, tensions and antagonism. Yet, I wish to conclude by stressing that what makes anthropology's distinguishing method indispensable is the fact that while the regional, national and international dimensions of Christianity may be hard to see from the vantage point of rural villages, detailed ethnographic case studies are necessary to examine the concrete forms these dimensions take in various local settings. There is, as Brian Howell has aptly put it, no doubt that the empirical reality of transnational cultural flows, migration, international media contact and the like has made an understanding of local processes both more complex and arguably more compelling. Thank you very much. <laughs>